0: This is Legal & Compliance Insights from Control Risks, a global specialist risk consultancy. This is the podcast, helping you navigate the legal and compliance landscape wherever your business takes you. Hello, I'm Henry Smith, and welcome to this episode of the Legal & Compliance Insights podcast. I'm a partner with control Risk in London, and I'm heavily involved in control Risk work around sanctions. I'm joined today by Justine Walker, who's a known expert in the field of sanctions and heads a program at ACAMS. Justine, thank you for joining us today. Perhaps you could say a few words to introduce yourself.
1: I am the Global Head of Sanctions, Compliance and Risk at ACAMS. Within that role, I lead the Global Thought Leadership Programme. And that specifically focuses around public private sector engagement, looking at the major financial crime risks facing industry, government, the global community. But I specifically do lead the sanctions work. And within that, we have a whole range of activities that we undertake around sanctions, whether it be counter proliferation financing, humanitarian payments, dealing with rapid response scenarios such as Afghanistan, and also industry readiness that we're currently preparing around Russia and we've enacted on other major sanctions regimes. So it's a pretty busy global portfolio.
0: Justine, my interactions with you over the years have told me the very same, But you stretch across the world in terms of your knowledge of how different sanctions regimes are affecting countries, but also your understanding of how different countries are using sanctions policy to try and reach certain political outcomes. I thought perhaps we could start the discussion by hearing some perspectives from you about how the US's approach to sanctions has changed as the US administration has moved from President Trump to President Biden. I know you've spent quite a lot of time engaging with a broad spectrum of stakeholders in the US, so you have some unique perspectives to offer on this point
1: you know, it's really helpful to take a little bit of a backward step and actually look at the sanctions review, which was undertaken in the very early stages of the Biden-Harris administration. And that was issued in October last year. And when the new administration came in, they wanted to take a fresh look at how sanctions were used. They really wanted to ensure that sanctions were being adapted and modernized to ensure and reflect U.S. security objectives. There was also a recognition from them that there was a decrease in the U.S. dollar, both by allies, but also parts of the world which were maybe more susceptible to sanctions. And then there was the technology innovation alternative payment platforms. So that led them to really look at a review of sanctions across the board, not individual programs. And I just wanted to say, you know, a couple of findings from that policy around what they were really looking at. So when they issued their policy framework, they highlighted a number of key areas. One was multilateral coordination. And that was very much that what we'd seen under the Trump presidency was there was a more of a unilateral US approach. So the Biden-Harris administration wanted to take it more back to multilateral coordination. This administration is also very focused on mitigating the unintended economic and political impacts of sanctions, so particularly around humanitarian aspects. So we've seen a lot more effort put in that area. One of the other areas that they've looked at is an investment in Treasury's technology workforce and resources for sanctions. So what does that mean in terms of actual policy? Who is being sanctioned? Well, actually, we've probably not seen a huge change in the major regimes, and I'm specifically talking here around China. We've seen a repositioning of the sanctions legislation to make it easier to apply that it's easier to interpret, and it's more targeted and less open to legal challenge. But the underlying issues have not changed. And actually, the Trump administration really focused on human rights, and the Biden administration is continuing that. Beyond China, and actually with China as well, I suppose the big change has really been the multilateral trying to work in collaboration with other allies. And we've seen that around the breadth of corruption sanctions coming out, human rights sanctions, and most recently on Russia. So I would say there's not been a major change for individual programs, but we've seen the architecture going slightly broader, looking more multilateral. We've seen some changes in actually the legislation, and we've seen more dialogue around unintended impacts, particularly for humanitarian actors.
0: And I think perhaps turning to look at the EU for a moment as another key source of sanctions policy, and to a lesser extent, I guess, enforcement action as well. From our perspective, the EU increasingly uses sanctions as a weapon of first resort or a policy tool of first resort in most major international crises with member states showing in recent years that they've been willing to absorb the economic costs that come with their sanctions. There's also been, I think, a change of thinking within the new-ish European Commission, where the Commission has tried to position itself in a more geopolitical way and to try and assert Europe's independent geoeconomic power. The other thing that we've noticed is that there's an effort On behalf of the EU, and I think you see this with the US and the UK as well, to use sanctions as a deterrent, not just as a reactive tool after the matter. We're seeing that at the moment around Russia with respect to Ukraine, but we've also previously seen it with some of Turkey's offshore drilling activities in parts of the Eastern Mediterranean that are disputed there's an effort to use sanctions to really support the EU's aim to be a leader in what it sees as the right normative values, such as tackling human rights and addressing corruption around the world. So if we take that forward in terms of what our listeners can expect to see in terms of EU sanctions, I think they will proliferate further and take on increasingly complex and enduring forms. I'll move to make a few comments on the UK Justine, which I think you will have a perspective on as well. But generally speaking, today, we've seen convergence between the UK and the EU on the main thrust of sanctions since the UK left the EU. There's been some tactical differences along the way, but in general, more consistency than difference. I think where we will begin to see differences is firstly in the pace at which the UK will be able to use sanctions as a tool. Indeed, we may well be seeing that in the next few stages of the crisis around Ukraine. And the other major difference, I think, will be, depending on the profile of any given administration on either side of the Atlantic, the UK may take a position that is much closer to the US on certain foreign policy questions than perhaps it will be to the EU. But Justine, how are you you seeing that relationship evolve?
1: I think it's absolutely fair to say that the there has been a lot of change across both the EU and the UK in terms of their sanctions programmes. We've actually seen a trend for more thematic regimes rather than individual country regimes. And so by thematic regimes, I mean a cyber regime or a human rights regime. This is certainly the trend that sanctions are evolving in. And that. That really reflects the sort of foreign policy objectives, the security objectives of sanctions. You know, it's an interesting perception you've given there regarding, you know, the EU's upscaling of sanctions. Because in a way, I suppose you could also say it it can be quite challenging to have sanctions actions from the EU because of the consensus mechanism that needs to be developed across the member states when you're looking at the introduction of new major sanctions. However, that said, they were incredibly quick to respond to the Belarus situation. And the package of sanctions that we saw in Belarus was the biggest package of sanctions since 2014 to come out of the EU. And actually... It went beyond what the US and the UK first implemented. So the EU can act very quickly when they have political consensus. But that is the challenge within the EU is their political consensus. And so you have two aspects you really need to think of. One is how sanctions are actually legally imposed in terms of do they have the legal mandate to impose sanctions in a certain scenario? And then the other aspect is do they have the political consensus to actually agree to impose these sanctions? And so it can be really complex in the EU scenario. The UK, and as you indicated, have developed their own autonomous sanctions regime, and they needed to do that on their departure from being a member of the EU, so basically Brexit. The post-Brexit sanctions regime is is very similar in terms of what was originally in place um, when they were in the EU. However, I don't think that that is necessarily Going to be the way forwards. And I think we've always indicated that there will be alliances and there will be convergence, but there will also be diversions where people feel it's in their foreign policy interest. The UK can actually sanctions probably now quicker than they could do when they were part of the EU. However, there is another side to that is that they're also more exposed to sanctions. So if they impose sanctions, they're also opening themselves up more for legal challenge as well. You know, the case to actually impose sanctions has to be very clear. And it does need to meet a certain UK threshold. So there are a number of dynamics, certainly across the EU and the UK side, which is worth keeping in mind. But neither of them at the moment really match the US sanctions architecture. You mentioned enforcement. Enforcement really is quite minimal in the EU side. I mean, economic actors do take European sanctions very, very seriously. But you do not tend to see the types of fines that in, within the EU that we see in the US. And, and that's because the EU have a different approach of doing things. They may, they may sort of look at remedial action in a different way. They don't quite use the enforcement framework as a mechanism to really drive forward sanctions in the same way that the US does. UK sits in the middle, we are seeing more enforcement action coming out, certainly more robust messaging. So for global actors, you know, you've got this really interesting scenario of very different legal frameworks from the US, the EU, UK, and they really need to navigate all of that. And sometimes they're navigating quite complex and conflicting
0: arrangements. You're quite right, Justine, to point to some of the nuances and subtleties between the US, the EU, and the UK on how they reach decisions about sanctions and then how they impose new regulations and enforce activity that violates their sanctions. I think if I summarise some of the challenges that we hear from organisations about sanctions compliance, they cut across a range of different scenarios. At the more operational end of the compliance spectrum, There's obviously the need to conduct screening on vast numbers of third parties, which organizations have touch points with, and understanding which of them is subject to which type of sanction, if indeed any. And in that process, managing a huge volume of possibly false positives or false negatives that come out and need some sort of attention. If we move to the other end of the spectrum, in which our role is often investigating particular entities through research, that helps to identify if these organizations are connected to sanctioned entities or individuals, or perhaps have the characteristics and networks that mean that they will be subject to sanctions in the future if a certain political outcome is reached. Then in those circumstances, our clients are more interested in understanding how it is that different governments decide whom to sanction and what might be the trigger points at which that would happen. Another area where we're seeing interest from clients in understanding what it is that they need to have internally to be able to consider sanctions in the whole is the human skills and capability that sits within compliance teams or adjacent to it. People recognise, as you've pointed out in this discussion, Justine, that sanctions are ultimately a foreign policy tool and a highly politicised area. So if you're looking to understand and future-proof your organization's exposure to sanctions, then you need to be looking at what's coming towards you in terms of global political developments and then understanding within specific countries how the politics of that country interacts with its economy and broader business environment. So our clients are increasingly looking at the skills that different adjacent teams can bring them, such as public policy, government affairs, and in some cases, even specialist members of ESG teams. Justine, I'd like to turn now, if I may, to some of your work at ACAMS, and I think also in previous roles that you were in, where you helped industry and the private sector engage with governments on some of their pain points and challenges with sanctions. Could you perhaps summarize for our listeners what you hear most regularly?
1: Complexity of implementation would be the absolute headline point here. You no know, 15 20 years ago you were really looking at the name of an individual or entity were they were they sanctioned and you know yes you had some major regimes whether it be around Iraq or other regimes where there were certain prohibitions or indeed comprehensive bans in some scenarios but today what we have is we have a much broader type of targeting of individuals entities country programs so we have ships targeted airlines targeted we have country programs which are you may be allowed to do business with them but you can't do certain types of loans or sovereign debt you know so what the difference between what is prohibited and what is permissible is now very very gray and that's where i spend a lot of my time working between industry and government on so really sort of setting out really on what are the expectations what does something actually mean so when we see a new sanctions regime come online there's always a lot of questions and you know we spoke earlier about the US the EU and the UK dynamics you know quite often we see foreign policy coordination to impose sanctions but there's not the same coordination on the types of licenses or frequently asked questions so you can and if I look back to 2014 and the Russia, Crimea, Ukraine situation then, So we saw the US come out very quickly with frequently asked questions, and it was months down the road before we saw the EU come out with a similar type of clarification on what their rules mean. So where I sit is I spend that energy looking at what are the most complex issues of the day, where do we need to identify public-private sector dialogue. So over the past year, we've been doing quite a lot of work around the maritime sector a lot of work around some of the China-focused sanctions. We actually have just been started a project around ransomware payments and how do you manage sanctions risk within ransomware payments. So you have these big, you know, big thematic issues, which are very, very global, where There is definitely a need to bring the public private sector together to understand that, you know, permissible versus prohibitions, you know, what is allowed, what isn't allowed. But there's also another dynamic below that, which is maybe a bit more mundane, but actually is equally as important. And you just sort of spoke to it it is around the screening, the due diligence side of things, because a lot of scenarios where we see sanctions breaches. It's because the basics haven't been implemented appropriately. So they've not actually set up their screening systems correctly. They've not undertaken, well, they've not incorporated sanctions compliance into customer due diligence. They haven't trained their staff. That's quite a big one as well. So there is this other aspect around trying to clarify what does a good compliance program look like? And this extends beyond regulated financial institutions who may be a bit more familiar with those types of concepts to actually all players, whether they're a big corporate, a small corporate, a humanitarian actor, because sanctions really is a much, impacts a much broader group of people. So you have two elements of that public-private sector dialogue. One is on the big ticket. What do these regimes mean? What do they look like? I mean, a big area I was involved with was when we had the nuclear deal, the JCPOA. I was spending a lot of time facilitating meetings even between Secretary Kerry and our foreign secretary at the time and bringing in the bank CEOs to really you know, look at what was really permissible, what would be the risk element either from a legal or reputational risk of going back into Iran, a lot of dialogue there, but also a lot of technical aspects on how do you ring fence certain elements What was the U.S. allowing versus what was the U.K. allowing and what did that mean for risk appetite? So there's that. But, you know, as I say, the the nuts and bolts, the basic elements of how have you set up your screening? How are you training your staff? How are you actually, you know, looking at ownership and control? Because we also know that ownership and control is very different legally from how the U.S. define it to the EU to find it, and the UK. Those fundamental differences can be quite critical to know whether you are actually violating sanctions or not. So, you know, sanctions is an exciting area. It evolves weekly, daily, sometimes hourly, but there's also just underpinning elements. And that's where we we balance our engagement on both aspects.
0: That's a fascinating summary, Justine. And I think what you really brought to life there Was a combination of needing to understand the macro political forces that shape geopolitics and thus where sanctions might go, but then also the minutiae of what an organization needs to have in place in order to ensure that it can comply with the different sanctions regimes that apply to it. And there's also a bit of a double edged sword in some ways to the level of guidance and FAQs that now appears, particularly in the US and increasingly in the UK, in the EU, about sanctions compliance in that it's helpful for helping organizations, whether regulated financial services or broader corporates and private equity firms, they can look at this guidance, they can build systems and processes around it, but knowing that that guidance exists means that there is a certain expectation of organizations now to have a level of sophistication in how they consider and evaluate sanctions risk and choose to comply with different regimes. I thought just to conclude the discussion, Justine, I might just ask you if there were any potential surprises or emerging trends with sanctions in the year ahead that perhaps are topics that aren't getting the attention yet that you think that they deserve.
1: So I used to be really good at looking at the year ahead and predicting the use of sanctions and how and where they might um, arise. I think it's becoming much more difficult to now predict that. We wouldn't have predicted the level of growth in sanctions. Three years ago, we wouldn't have identified China as being so, so complex. We wouldn't potentially have indicated Russia would be under the spotlight it currently is. And Afghanistan as another one. So we've seen three major sanctions regimes, which for those of us in the sanctions community, maybe weren't quite in tune with the wider geopolitical risk aspects. So for me, predicting what might be, you know, what might happen in the year ahead, I think you do absolutely need to align your sanctions planning scenarios. But also, you need to align that really closely with looking at geopolitical risk. Where are the hotspots going to be in the world, which may trigger sanctions? Now, I say that there is one area that I do think is going to come much more up the discussion. And I don't think it is having the spotlight it currently needs And that's around supply chains. So we saw in December the Uyghur Forced Labour Prevention Act passed in the U.S. And, you know, that act could be really fundamental in changing how people assess risk around supply chains. And so for me, that's one that anybody in the corporate financial world should absolutely be watching for. And there's a public consultation going on. Then the US government will need to issue priority areas for enforcement, priority risk indicators. They'll need to identify entities of concern. And then in June this year, we're going to see guidance come out from the US side. So that's certainly one which would be at the top of my agenda this year. I mentioned ransomware earlier on. I think that ransomware cyber risk, you know, we could potentially see more complex sanctions in that place come forward. So that's a new emerging threat, which certainly governments globally, Western governments, whether it's Australia, whether it's Canada, the UK, EU, US, they're all focusing much more around cyber and can they use sanctions as a tool to mitigate against cyber? There's also hotspots. You know, we, we spend a lot of time talking around Russia, China, but if you look at the human rights corruption sanctions, I think that is also one of the areas where we may see scenarios happening in other parts of the world out where you know, out with the big players we've talked about, where sanctions could be more forthcoming, so you know it could look a very diverse framework and moving forwards, but for me, the big ticket issues are really around cyber supply chains, ransomware, and I definitely am advising everybody I work with and if they have a footprint in both Russia in China potentially other parts of the world, to really look at how they may be impacted by counter sanctions. Do they understand their exposure to different jurisdictions? Are their contract clauses appropriately designed? Can they exit relationships if they need to without being sued? So there's a lot to think of there and there's a lot of elements that we could see develop over the next 12 months.
0: Thanks, Justine. That's a really excellent range of issues. The supply chain point, I think Is one that is very pertinent. And the sanctions considerations there are also being wrapped up in other trends that are driving greater scrutiny of supply chains, not least the broader ESG agenda and some of the additional diligence requirements that are being imposed by governments around the world. Ransomware is clearly an area that is of interest to clients that Control Risk works with, both in a proactive sense of understanding how it is that they might address ransomware considerations, but also in a reactive sense when. They unfortunately experience a breach of some sort and thus need to quite quickly understand what it is that they can or can't do. I've also been someone that shares a view that political flashpoints around, say, elections or in some cases, contested political processes outside of elections. I mean, if we look at the range of coups that there have been in parts of Africa, this year is one recent example. That is an area where we're seeing questions from clients around how they can get ahead of these potential flashpoints. And one of the ways that we've responded is by developing a series of sanctions risk ratings that we build on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction level and then look at different sector impacts in that specific jurisdiction. And our team look at that and revise the ratings as and when they see political events coming or in response to political outcomes. My final area that I would suggest that our listeners keep in mind as potentially one of surprise and evolution in sanctions is whether different governments begin to look at environmental harm as a justification for sanctions type action. I think there it would probably be the EU that would try to position itself as a leader. As we mentioned earlier, the EU does try to use sanctions to position itself or to position its values around the world. And we know that the EU has been one of the leaders in the broader ESG agenda, which organizations are thinking about their compliance with and their more fundamental approach to. Justine, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today and for sharing your insights. It's been a real pleasure having you on.
1: Henry, it's always a pleasure to speak to you and I've enjoyed our exchange today. Thank you.
0: If you're in need of any support relating to the topics covered in today's episode or are simply interested in hearing more about our range of legal and compliance services, do get in touch. And before you go, make sure to subscribe.